Yeah, welcome back, guys, to another in the Morningstar Men's Life School series on champions, the making of a champion. We're going to do a little bit of review from weeks one and week two, and then we'll get into the fresh material from week three. Week two was uploaded separately. Uh, we recorded the entire Life School event on Saturday morning. But a couple of guys have asked that I do this quick review because they indicated that they find it helpful, that it's... Uh, perhaps easier to listen to, even for those who are listening to it by way of review while they're following along with the notes a second time. So I hope this is helpful. Uh, the feedback I did get from the other week was really helpful, and it's caused me to continue to do this a little bit. And so if uh, you want to add some additional input, I'd certainly welcome that. You can send it by email to men at mstarqtown.org, or you can contact me directly. Okay, so into the material for the day. Uh, remember, we're looking at weeks one and two in review, and then we'll jump into week three. So in week one, we began by asking the question, what's the purpose to a champion? Does the world really need any champions? And the answer simply stated was yes, because. And the because is that nothing in this world ever stays fixed. Nothing in this world ever stays right. Now, we all know that from something as simple as home repairs that need to be done again, but we know that as well from things like human relationships that never remain perfect unless they're constantly monitored and addressed. Businesses, once they're running smoothly, you can't forever let your hands off the wheel because they don't drive themselves. That's true for organizations such as churches. That's true for everything. Nothing stays permanently fixed. And even if it did, the dynamics of things change because new people come into an organization. Some people leave an organization. And with every change in human beings, there's a change in the human dynamic of understanding and knowledge that, that takes place. And so the world needs champions simply to maintain some state of normalcy, let alone to improve some of the things that are noticeably lacking or wanting in this world. And that brings us to the next question, which exactly what is a champion? What do we mean when we say champion? And uh, we've given three definitions that I think are all helpful for our purposes here. I'm not going to get into the fourth typical definition. The fourth typical definition, incidentally, is just someone who wins a prize. And in view of the way we're looking at this material, I don't think that's an adequate definition because we want our winning to be part of a larger purpose. Even, and I know this at times sounds corny or overdone, but even, in fact, an eternal purpose, meaning one that at very least lasts beyond our lifetime, and for those of us who are believers, one that lasts into eternity. And that can take a number of different directions or aspects, so let's not rush to conclude, oh, this means winning people to Jesus. Well, it might mean that, but it means a whole lot more than that. So what is a champion in the three ways that we're looking at it? Well, it's a warrior or a fighter. Is there anything in your world that deserves a fight because it's good and it needs to be protected? A uh, different definition for champion is an advocate or a defender. Well, is there any, anybody or any organization that you believe needs a voice? Is there anyone who is underserved and under-resourced? And because of those two things, they're actually undervoiced. They're not fairly represented. Or maybe they're not intellectually as as able to represent themselves. Newborns, young kids, the elderly can perhaps need an advocate or a defender. So a warrior or a fighter is the first definition. An advocate or a defender is the second one. And the third definition that I think is at times helpful for us is one who fights on behalf of another's honor. So if you'll permit me to, again, go a little bit Christian with this, every time we set foot outside the house 
and stand on behalf of the values that we believe are the values of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, as Christ followers, every time we follow Christ in the workplace, in the community, and we do it in a way that perhaps calls attention to what we're doing, not necessarily to us, not necessarily to Jesus specifically. That that can be a little over the top. But when we do something in a way that's unique, it's above average, it's done with excellence, and it causes people to notice, we want to be able to say, well, here's where I get these ideas from. Here's where I get these principles from. And in that sense, we are stepping into a gap and we are doing battle on behalf of the honor of another one, which is Jesus or i.e. the kingdom of heaven. All right. So the next thing we looked at was uh, types of change because anyone is going to need to change if they're going to be a champion. Why? Because none of us is born that way. You weren't born great. And apart from a lot of intelligent and planned effort, you will not become great. Neither will I. There is no greatness without intelligent choice and sacrificial effort. So the first response that I can have to change is, nope, not interested. Haven't given me enough evidence. Don't think I need to change. Don't want to change. Uh, I'm pretty comfortable the way I am. Thank you very much. Now, obviously, people in that in that category, yeah, change will come to them, but they will not be in control of the change. So, okay, enough about the people who won't change. Incidentally, all of us is that with one thing or another. Uh, you're asked to buy new things every day and say no to them. You're asked to sign on the dotted line to take out a new loan for something. Say no to that. Perhaps asked to sign up for additional cable, optional cable television. and Say no to that. So we all say no to change every day. So the real question is, do I find the costs of the change more beneficial than the sacrifices of the change? All right, next kind of change is incremental change. And we said that that's great. That's normal. That's what a lot of people do. They do it with their physical routines. They do it with their eating habits. They even do it with reading habits. They sometimes do it with their waking and sleeping habits. Just go to bed a few minutes earlier, wake up a few minutes earlier, etc., etc. Incremental change is part of the normal change process. But what we said was that in many cases, incremental change, which is easy to move into, is also easy to move out of. And therefore, if a new invitation to still another kind of change comes into our life, we're liable to incrementally move out of the change that we've just committed to because we're invited into a different kind of change. And in that sense, our life just simply goes in cycles, up and down, around and around, and never goes anywhere. Which leads us to the third kind of change, which is radical or significant change. And that is literally to start your life on a new foundation. You can't get there doing what you're doing. You can't get to where you want to go from where you are. And so you make a radical change. Perhaps it's a change that causes you to move across the country. Because perhaps it's a change that causes you to take up a new career. Whatever it is, it's not an incremental change. You cannot be on two sides of a chasm at the same time. You can't have one foot on one side of a chasm or a canyon and the other foot on the other side of it. Some things take a radical all-in change. You're either in or you're out, and there is no in-between. All right, so we said nextly that a champion has two primary concerns throughout his life. Uh, we'll get into a little bit more of the details of what championship life looks like in a bit that will help you to understand this more clearly. But for now, a champion's two primary concerns. The first concern is about becoming, because no champion for the rest of his life is going to be satisfied with who he is and what he is in the moment and be satisfied with that permanently. Champions are committed to becoming more so that they can perform better, fight better, and advocate better and even battle in another's honor better. So a champion is concerned about his becoming. That's a journey of the inner man. 
It's also sometimes a journey of skill. The next thing a champion is concerned with, obviously, is uh, how am I doing at what I'm doing? So that's your craft. That's that's your competitive sport. Whatever that thing is, it, it's running that business. How am I doing at that? So the two focuses of a champion, who I'm becoming and what I'm doing, and the attempt to intelligently, wisely, with discernment, improve it both. We said nextly that every champion faces a couple of enemies. The first is good. The good is always the enemy of great. The second is comfort. And that a moderate amount of comfort will always be the enemy of greatness because any amount of greatness requires difficult effort sustained over time. Difficult effort sustained over time. Because that's true, there's obviously a built-in discomfort factor. So you can't maintain the comfort that you have the ease that you have, and also live a championship life because the championship life is going to ask you to leave behind the comfort that you've grown accustomed to. So you can either be comfortable or you can be great, but you probably can't be both, at least not at the same time. Uh, We moved on and we looked at the topic of regret, which every human being faces, and suggested that while every human being will at the end of life have regret, that every one of us will live with certain regrets, that the, the real test of managing regret is Am I going to look back and say that the things that I have a regret for not doing are either outweighed or outweigh the things that I didn't do? So we'll all arrive at the end of life not having done some things we wanted to do. We didn't visit the place we wanted to visit. We we didn't spend more time with this. We didn't ever learn French or Spanish or whatever it was that we promised ourselves we would do. We all will go to our grave with certain regrets. Big question is, When you're experiencing those regrets, can you look back across your life and say, yes, but I did this greater thing instead of that lesser thing. And even though I wish I could have learned Spanish and done the greater thing, since I couldn't do both, I chose to do the greater, the better thing. And I can live with satisfaction, even if I wish I could have done more. All right. All champions, we said nextly live at the convergence of two things, passion and competence. I realize that sounds a little bit like becoming and doing, and it really is. But the convergence of passion and competence and a capacity to improve at each is what constitutes the champion's foundation. I can have a passion for doing something without without the competence. I can have a competence for doing something without the passion. Neither of those by themselves is going to sustain a championship-level performance for very long. So it takes both. Next thing we said was that uh, the quote from which this entire series stemmed was this, and it's a John Wooden quote, to win takes skill, to remain a champion takes character. And therefore we know when we can state with certainty that yes, it does take competence, i.e. skill, in order to win, it's going to take more than skill to remain a winner over the long haul, over a long period of time. Because every winner will lose. It's what winners do after they lose. It's what winners do until they win that determines if they'll win or if they'll pick up and maintain a winning streak. Even if things like being a warrior in defense of something good, advocating on behalf of something good, So when we look at this, don't only think something like sports, which you might say, well, I have no heart for that. I don't care about that. Suppose you're running an inner city ministry. You should not assume that you're going to move from win to win to win if you're involved in that endeavor. You're going to experience some losses from time to time, and it is your character during the times of doubt or frustration or the long seasons where it doesn't look like something is going to work 
and there's only a handful of wins sprinkled into that whole sauce, it's during those times that your character is going to take you along to the next win. All right, as we wrapped up week number one, we had a series of five questions. These questions I'd like you to ask each week when we look at the qualities that we're going that constitute championship performance. The first is, is this thing true for me? And that could apply to today's things. Do I have a fight worth fighting? Am I willing to sacrifice to change or am I not willing to? Am I willing to make a radical change if that's necessary? Is that true for me? And, and you can ask that with any of the things that we've talked about. Is this thing true for me or is it not true for me? The next question is, do I want it to be true? And the follow-up question is directly related to it. What would it take for that to be true? It's not enough to want something to be true in your life. To want something to be true without having a plan for its achievement is simply a wish. So what would it take for that thing to be true in your life? What are the steps you'd have to take? What are the things you'd have to give up? Come back to the change thing. Finally, am I willing to pay that price? So that's a review from week one. Again, those questions. Is this true for me or is it not true? Do I want it to be true? What would that take? And would I be willing to pay the price? And with that, we move into week two and a review of that, which uh, if you want to hear the entire teaching, uh, Vinny did that last week on Saturday morning. So this is just a review before we jump into week three. And we said that the first and the foremost quality of all champions is a firm and a fixed desire. That is, I know that I want something. I want to be something. I want to do something. That desire is firm. It, it, it is infused with a great amount of passion. And it is fixed. A fixed desire is one that doesn't change over time. So, for instance, if you have a desire one week to be a championship discus thrower, and the next week you'd like to swim in the Olympics, and the next week you'd like to be a fighter pilot, you have some desires. They're no doubt big desires, and you may be passionate about them, but they're just not fixed desires. So no champion can keep his eyes on too many things at the same time. You've all heard, we've all heard that phrase, eyes on the prize. Well, the prize has to stay at the same place. It has to be the same prize. So we keep our gaze focused on one thing and one thing only. Because as you read through the lives of great people, what you'll find is great people are only great at a handful of things. And they're really, really, really not so great at a number of other things. All right. Well, what is the opposite of a firm and fixed desire? And I want to introduce in each week when we talk about these qualities, something that will be its opposite so that we can gain some clarity by the contrast between the two. And I'm going to suggest to you that the opposite of a firm and fixed desire is simply a lack of a clear mission and a lack of identity. Now, the lack of a clear mission, that might make total sense to you. The lack of identity, that might be a little confusing, so let me clarify that. When you and I pursue things in order to confirm who we are because we doubt who we are unless we do what we say we're going to do. In other words, if you're not a man until you do certain things. If you all remember back to that old Rolling Stones song about how he can't be a man because he doesn't smoke the same cigarettes as me, that's an identity issue. So do you have a firm and fixed desire because you value the thing that you're fighting for? You value the people that you're fighting on behalf of? Or do you just have a firm and fixed desire because you want to do something great to prove to the rest of the world who you are? Because that is a losing mission. No champion remains a champion who is simply trying to prove to the world who he is. That's just not enough. All right. That the contrasts we've covered, so the opposite of, of that firm and fixed desire, the first one we said was a clear mission. Now, that I said is probably obvious, but just in case it's not, waking up every morning 
with a sense of why you're waking up, what you have to do that day, how what you have to do that day fits into the plan for your week, fits into the plan for your month, that makes it a lot easier to wake up and endure the difficult things, the sacrifices that you'll have to make. Uh, come back to that principle of sacrifices. No champion becomes great without making sacrifices. Sacrifices include things that you really will hurt not will hurt not doing or hurt not seeing. It's not called a sacrifice by by accident. It will hurt if you have to spend a little less time with your family. It may hurt them. It may hurt you. They'd long to see more of you. It might hurt in terms of cost in business performance because in order for you to travel to do something else that you're committed to, you may not be able to spend as much time at your business. There are clear, noteworthy sacrifices that every champion has to make, and so a clear sense of mission really matters. All right. So following that, and as, as a balance to that, we said this, that that firm and fixed desire, and what I'm now going to call a hunger, has to have a balance to it. And the balance is this, I can take nothing to such an extreme that it destroys me in the process of achieving this. So if I achieve this thing and it costs me everything else, if I achieve this success and it costs me my family, uh, that was not a balanced desire. Solomon had a great phrase that he used describing adultery. He said, can a man take fire into his lap and not get burnt? And that's the way it is with us when we have an unhealthy desire. Remember this, a healthy desire actually, in the end, makes a better person of you through the attainment of it. Even if you never quite reach the pinnacle that you set out for yourself, a healthy desire makes a better man or a better woman of you, depending on who might be listening here. An unhealthy desire actually destroys the holder in the process. So make sure that either you or some close friends that are, are able to speak into your life are keeping a check on that. You don't want your desires to take you to places that you'll never return from or regret that you went to. All right. Let me pause here while I regroup and we'll, we'll catch up in just a minute. What I'd encourage you to do, though, while we pause here, is take a minute to think about what we've already talked about. See, see what's true for you, what's not true, and what it would take for it to be true. All right, welcome back again, and now we're going to move on to what I'll call the uh, value, the residual value of every accomplishment. Uh, many times you'll hear of people, especially coming to Jesus stories of people who achieved a pinnacle moment in sports or in music or in entertainment of some sort. Maybe they arrived at the peak of business. They worked for years to achieve a certain level of success in business. And they get to that point, this thing that they have worked at for years, and they describe it as, well, I thought when I got to this point, I would feel satisfied. It would bring me some sense of reward and accomplishment and happiness. And I find nothing but emptiness here. Well, the reality is that no past accomplishment can bring you a future satisfaction for very long. That's simply inevitable. You cannot live basking in the successes of the past and find meaning for them in the future. And so every great desire that you have has to be seen as fitting into what I referred to a while back as an eternal purpose. If all of your desires, once achieved, are singular in their value, singular in their nature, and are not in some way connected to something else, then you will feel empty at their attainment. It's done, and you don't have a next thing to go to. Incidentally, that brings up another really vital point about champions. 
a champion who so neglects everything else in his life, once he achieves that level of success, literally has arrived at the pinnacle and there is nowhere to go. So imagine standing at the pointy tippy top of a mountain. There is nowhere to go from that pinnacle but down. In any direction he looks, he goes down. What you'll notice with great sports figures is that the majority of them, as they move toward the age when they know they're going to retire, they're already establishing for themselves next steps in career, next steps in relationship, next steps in some sort of business, whatever it is. And so the wise man or the wise woman sees this championship phase of his life as leading to the next and leading to the next, and all of them with a larger purpose in mind, which generally speaking is going to have some value to humanity. Uh, most most champions cannot point back to say, I won this, I was the best at this, and have that alone be satisfaction, which can carry them through for the rest of their lives. All right, let's move on to the next thing. A champion, and this comes back to the identity issue, knows who he is apart from what he does. So if a man's only validation comes from what he's won, then when the winning is done, what is that man? But if you are a champion on behalf of a particular cause, you can fight in some capacity for the rest of your life on behalf of that cause. If you are a servant, we'll say, of the Most High God, you can be a servant of the Most High God and perform with excellence over the course of your lifetime. Incidentally, there's a number of great championship lessons that you can glean from the book of Daniel. As you, as you look through that book, you see a man who was taken to a foreign country when he was young had to convince those who held him captive that the ways that he was accustomed to living by as a Hebrew would actually produce the same, if not better, results in terms of diet than the results that would be expected from him if, if he ate the food according to the custom of their land. He had to use the wisdom that he was given by God in order to fulfill his role in government there properly. And throughout the course of his life, Daniel sets us a great example for a man who performed at championship level didn't compromise his values, stood for something, and yet was effective and successful and came to be extremely valued, extremely valued, by that secular government. And so in that sense, he was a person who fought on behalf of another person's value. And yet he did that throughout the course of his life because his mission throughout all of his life was to fight on behalf of or bring honor to God through excellent public service. All right, another thing that we need to know, and it's going to come from two different phrases, two different verses in the scripture. The first one is coming from Jesus, who says, and he reminds us that we should not make what what are typically called in the New King James Version oaths. We should not make promises. Would not we should not make vows that are based on something else. In other words, I should not swear according to God that I will do this or do that. Jesus says, because that's above you, that's above your reach, that's above what you're capable of. You don't have the authority to swear by God's name, because you don't know if God is in this. And then Jesus goes on to say, just simply let your yes be yes, or your no be no. Let your yes be yes, or your no be no. Well, this, that, that simple truth is actually very powerful if you dig a little bit below the surface and consider this. Unless you have some authority, you have no business saying yes. Uh, let me give you an example. If you have kids at home and somebody knocks at the door and says, well, would you like to buy a new vacuum cleaner? Your 12-year-old kid cannot go answer the salesman at the door and say, well, heck yeah, bring that $500 thing in here. 
I, I mean, at least I hope you can't, because he has not been authorized to say yes. But when Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, he is saying you do have a certain amount of authority. There are things that you can say yes to, can say no to, and your word does carry authority. Just understand, Jesus says, where the limits of your authority stop. Uh, followed up with a couple of verses from James, and James says, look, if you're in business, don't say you're going to go here or go there, and you're going to stay there for a year, and you're going to make X amount of money, and you know, you're going to travel and do all this, and then you'll come home with, with this bag full of loot. He says, don't say those kinds of things because they're beyond you to say. You simply don't have that level of authority. You can't speak to what you're going to be doing a year later. You don't have the authority and you don't have the knowledge to do that. But you do have the power. You do have the authority to say, with God's will, in other words, under God's authority, with the authority of God behind me, I can go to this town. I can do business for this length of time. And perhaps I can make a certain amount of money. So know that you, as a champion, are a person who has authority, but serves under authority, and therefore know the limits of your authority, don't exceed them, but know the limits of your authority, and take full advantage of them. Let me talk about a couple of final things here. The first is this. It's easy to read certain pages in the scripture. It's easy to read certain stories, certain biographies, autobiographies, and we see the people painted in a certain light, and they live world-class, they perform world-class, they do world-class, and we instantly think, boy, I wish I could be like them. And sometimes what we don't see is all the complications of everyday life. You can see this in scriptures, incidentally. When you look at Jesus' life, you can marvel at the fact that he could travel and he could teach and he could teach and he could heal and he could heal and he could travel and he could travel and he could teach, and on and on it went. And so that the Apostle John, when he's writing years later about Jesus, he said of all the words that Jesus spoke and all the healings he did, if all that were to be put into a book, he said, I don't think the whole world could contain that book. All right, perhaps a little bit of an exaggeration, but his point is Jesus did an amazing amount in only a few years. But what we also see is Jesus' life was not complicated by some of the things that complicate our lives. Uh, Jesus chose not to marry, we believe. Jesus chose to have other family members care for his mother and perhaps his younger siblings at a certain point in his life. Jesus didn't have a business to run. Jesus didn't have sick relatives to take care of. Now, let's look at another man. Let's look at Abraham by contrast. Now, Abraham had a number of these things. A wife whom he did not always get along with completely. A nephew who was sometimes a problem to him a business to run, invaders that came and took things away, many other complications. His wife's desire to have a child, have a child. Abram's desire to have a child, yet no child comes. So Abram performs at a championship level over a period of years, and yet his life is filled with complexities. And therefore, the type of battle that Abraham does on behalf of the kingdom is very different than the life of Jesus and his battle on behalf of the kingdom. We can see this with Old Testament prophets. We can see this with the life of Paul, who was free to travel and do great things. We can see it with the life of Moses, who, on the other hand, spent a, a period of years simply taking care of sheep and taking care of a family. And even later on, we see that Moses has a family to attend to, even while he's taking care of what, are, what is assumed to be millions of people. All right, I'm going to let you guys think about that for a few moments. We're going to come back and we're going to do a summation of week number three now and the second quality of all great champions.
Okay, welcome back, and we're going to pick up on week three now, and the second attribute of champions. So remember the first quality, the first attribute of every champion is a firm and fixed desire. Now we're going to look at the second quality, and it is only second, because I believe you can't be a champion unless you have a firm and fixed desire. You have something, one clear thing that you're working toward. And if it weren't for that, I believe this second quality I would clearly put at the top of the list, and that is self-awareness. And its contrasting point is either timidity or busyness of mind. Busyness of mind simply explained by the fact that I'm... I'm, my mind is too cluttered with too many things that I'm trying to do, too many things that I'm trying to accomplish, or simply just basic amusements. My mind is too cluttered to do the long and quiet work of becoming aware of who I am and what I am on the inside and what drives me and motivates me, makes me tick and makes me strive. Uh, the other one is timidity, and timidity I do not mean in terms of courage versus a lack of courage to face things in the outer world, but rather Timidity in the sense that I really don't want to look inside myself. I don't want to see the things that I might find because I'm not sure I'd like what I'd find if I look carefully enough. So, self-awareness, the second quality of every champion and every championship performance. So, what do we mean by self-awareness? Perhaps the best thing to do is to take a look at a couple of quotes. And I'm going to look at one from Jesus first, taken out of his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, only I'm going to do it uh, from a different version. I'm going to do it from where he speaks, as recorded by Luke. And it says, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? Why, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye, and after that you'll be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And I keep in mind that Jesus is talking to the entire audience, and he doesn't single anyone out. It's not like one half of the crowd has specks in their eye, and the other half has planks in their eye. And he looks at the people with the planks in their eye and says, hey, why are you looking over at the people with specks in their eye? That's not what's happening here. What he's actually saying, we all receive. Because when you and I read that, we don't think about somebody else and say, oh, he has a speck in his eye. Jesus must be talking to me. He's not talking to the other guy. We immediately sense that Jesus is talking to us. And if Jesus is talking to us and we sense that, well, Jesus is talking to all of us and we need to be aware of that. It is our tendency to look out at others and see their faults and their flaws. It is much more difficult to look inside ourselves and see our faults and our flaws and the things that we should work on. But notice what Jesus says. He says, you should take the plank out of your eye first. Take the plank out of your eye first and then you'll be able to see more clearly. If you've ever tried to do anything to take figurative planks out of your eye, in other words, to do the hard work of discovering what makes you tick inside and then addressing some of the brokenness inside your own life, you'll, you'll come to discover exactly how difficult that is and how much temptation there is simply to look out at other people and say, yeah, but they have this. And to that, Jesus says, let's call that a speck in their eye because until you can deal with the plank in your own eye, you have no reason to be looking over at their speck. You don't know if it's a speck or a plank, why? Well, you just can't see clearly enough because your entire worldview is biased by that plank that's in your own eye. Okay, we'll move on from Jesus' words, and now I want to look at someone who's a contemporary writer. He's a uh, business recruiter, and he actually happens to be a pastor as well. I just found out about this fellow recently. 
And here's his quote, The most common trait I see in young hires is their lack of self-awareness. They attribute most of the negatives and failures in their short lives to life itself, or to others, or to circumstances, never or only rarely questioning their own role or their own contribution to whatever bad experiences they've had. Okay, so at the risk of being a little bit redundant, what he, here's what he's saying. When I interview younger people for work positions, I invariably find that they blame most of their failures in life on other people rather than first volunteering. Here's where I messed up, and here's what I did that contributed to that. Now, I don't believe he's singling out younger people so much he is singling out all people who are striving to get a job for the first time. Now, over a period of time, I think we gradually discover that or are comfortable admitting that we've made some mistakes. But the reality is, what he's saying is, most younger people are struggling with a sense of their own shortcomings, which is a process of becoming self-aware. Okay, so we're going to look very quickly at three things. What is self-awareness? Why does it matter? And what are a few of the tools that we can use to become a little bit more self-aware? I'm just going to take a quick formula here. Self-awareness is constituted by the current conditions in my life. What, what's going on in my life? Do I know what's going on in my life? And do I know how I'm responding to it? It's also influenced by past conditioning. So my ability to be self-aware in the moment is influenced by my past conditioning. If I've never seen any good examples of people who were introspective, who were willing to admit both their strengths and their weaknesses, if I've never seen that, and all I've seen is people who hide behind other people and hide behind the faults of other people and blame other people for their mistakes, if that is my conditioning in the past, I'm going to be less likely to have the courage. Remember we said that one of the contrasts to self-awareness was timidity. I'm going to be less likely to have the courage to dig inside my own life to see if I can find out what's broken there and what's not going right. This is incidentally very true sometimes in husband-wife relationships. It's really easy to look out, look across the table, look across the, the bedroom and see, well, if she would only. Meanwhile, she's thinking, well, if he would only. It takes a lot more effort to say, you know, if I would only then perhaps she might. If I would only, then perhaps she might. All right, let me read a couple more thoughts here. Uh, perhaps it will help us to define self-awareness a little better. Self-awareness pertains to all elements of my internal state. So my internal state is my emotions, my thought process, my physicality. Am I, am I tired? Uh, am, I, am I just weak because of a lack of food? Self-awareness is my ability to... Let, let's call self-awareness the gauges that monitor your internal world. But self-awareness is not only the ability to look at my inner world, self-awareness is the ability to look at my outer world, and my outer world is my performance. So my inner world is what I'm thinking and feeling and experiencing. My outer world is what I'm doing. Now here's the paradox. You and I are each the only ones who are able to evaluate our internal state. No one else can feel my emotions apart from some clues that I give them. If I'm overtly angry, I may explode and then other people know that I'm angry. But until the point that I give them a clue by exploding or talking harshly to them, they, they have no idea that I'm angry. If you're one of those people that's referred to as a stuffer, no one will ever know that you're angry. Perhaps you'll get a little bit sullen. That might be the only clue. 
So in reality, you and I are the only ones that can take the pulse, take the temperature of our internal state in all its forms, both physically, emotionally, intellectually. But when it comes to the performance side, we also want to take ownership of that, and yet you, we are, as individuals, in many cases uniquely unqualified to fairly and without bias assess our skills. I joke about this from time to time. You've undoubtedly heard some form of this. That something like 65 or 70 percent of all American drivers say that they're above average in driving skills. Well, we all know that can't be true because 70 percent of people can't be above average. But yet 70 percent of people really believe that they're above average, which clearly says that most people have an overinflated viewpoint of what they're good at and how good they are at it. So the paradox here, you and I, as difficult as it is, are the only ones, apart from God, and this is why it is so valuable to have the Spirit of God living inside of us, just from a practical nature, a friend that will never leave us, a comforter, a helper who can walk alongside us and reveal to us in a safe way what we're experiencing, not to condemn us, but to teach us and enlighten us so that we can walk through the change process. But yet when it comes to externals, that is our performance, we need some people that we can trust to help us better assess where we're performing well and where we're performing poorly. All right, let me pause this for a moment while you think about that and which you struggle the most to do, assess your internal state or seek out people who can help you to assess your external performance. Okay, I hope you've had a little bit of time to reflect on that. Now we're going to come back and we're going to look at some of the reasons why self-awareness is important. I'm going to start off with two quick reasons. The first is that self-awareness leads to better self-management. If you are the only one who can ultimately manage your life, and if, if, if we use the phrase self-improvement, and self-improvement is far more than self-improvement, if you're a follower after Jesus, then you're going to have to acknowledge that self-improvement is actually inviting Christ in to help you make some improvements and you cooperating and working diligently and intelligently toward assisting with that process. But also improvement in, incorporates the, the contributions of many other people. Well, a self-aware person knows himself best and therefore is best able to manage self. You can't fix what you don't know is broken. Or you can spend all day fixing the wrong thing. If you've ever worked on a car and you've spent hours replacing a part only to find out that that wasn't the part that was going to fix the problem, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Self-awareness helps you to do self management with intelligence and with the necessary tools. Therefore, you can apply the right pressure, the right leverage at the right place in your life to achieve a better effect. Remember, we're talking about championship performance, not ordinary performance. So if you want ordinary performance, you can pretty much let things go and let things fall where they may. But if you want to perform at peak capacity over a long period of time, well, then you need to be aware of the things in your life that might be pulling you down, slowing you down, holding you up, so that you can manage toward or away from those things. All right. Dovetailing nicely with that is understanding the it's in your life. You can't fix it if you don't know it's in there and needs to be fixed. You can't remove it if it's in there and it's causing you harm, maybe grudges, resentment, maybe a fear of something, whatever it is, you cannot get in and manage that to remove it if you don't understand that it's there. Understanding that it is there, whatever it is, is a function of self-awareness. Finally, you can't add it 
if it's not there. And at the risk of sounding a little bit uh, mechanical or mechanistic about this, if, you're, if your internal self was a house, and as you went through the rooms of that house, you discovered the kitchen was well furnished, the bathroom was well appointed, there was a bedroom with a bed, and dressers and all that stuff in it, and you walked into what we'll call the living room or the den, and there was no furniture, and there was just an empty, an empty room painted white, you'd say, well, something's missing here. Well, in, in that same sense, accurate self-awareness doesn't always show you or only show you what's in there that needs to be worked on. It may show you that there's some areas that there's nothing there and something needs to be there if you're going to perform at peak level. So, self-awareness helps us to manage what's in there. It helps us to remove what shouldn't be there. It helps us to get in there the things that need to be there. Next thing we're going to look at is a couple of ways to self-assess what we're going to call the emotional state. Uh, if you're familiar with any of the work from Tony Robbins, and I, I know some of you may not be Tony Robbins fans, I get that, but Tony Robbins has done a lot of work addressing or dealing with mental and emotional state. He's very famous for that, actually. Well, I've recently been reading a, a training or a book that's written by one of the mental training coaches for the New Zealand All Blacks. And he talks about the All Blacks' situational training where they talk about red-headed performance and blue-headed performance. And just as those colors might suggest, red-headed performance is performing out of an overheated and over-anxious state. Blue-headed performance is performing out of coolness. So let's look at some of the qualities that he describes of red-headed performance. And red-headed performance he associates with survival mentality. So think of this in a professional sports setting. Survival mentality is being ahead and then all of a sudden locking up and being fearful that you're going to lose the game and you start to flinch, you hesitate. Redheaded performance is playing it too safe because you want to keep the points that are on the board and you're afraid that if you do something dumb, even after you put this many points on the board, if you do something dumb, the other team is going to win. And so you begin to play it in a protective and a fearful or survivor-focused mode. It leads to an overheated state, an overwhelmed state, and unnecessary tension. Now, the exact opposite of that is what he refers to as a blue-headed state. And if you've ever done any study on the term flow, which is a mental state of, of clarity where things just seem to come effortlessly, that would all come out of what this fellow would describe as a blue-headed state. And in, in this state, he says that there's a certain clarity that takes place. Okay, you can see you're ahead, but you can see that it's still possible for you to take risks. You can assess that the other team, while they're behind, is not only behind, but they're also perhaps playing a little bit tired by this point in the game. You can see that you have certain advantages. You can also notice that you have certain disadvantages. A blue-headed state allows you to think not out of fear, but out of clarity. It gives you what he refers to as a situational awareness, an accurate analysis, and good decision-making under pressure. Well, all that makes sense, doesn't it? But all that only comes out of this single thing, being able to, in the moment, figuratively speaking, push the pause button on your life and your thoughts and your emotions and ask a couple of simple questions. What am I feeling now? Why am I feeling that? Is my feeling this way justified? Can worrying about it do anything about it? 
And if worrying about it can't do anything about it, then do I need to be in this state? And resetting, literally resetting your state. Which leads us to the next thing what I'm going to talk about, and that's the principle of mantras. And a mantra is not this mysterious thing like you'd associate with Eastern religions. I don't want you to think of it that way at all. What I want you to understand a mantra to be is a three or a four word statement, ideally three. And in those three words are packed tons of meaning that lend clarity to a tense situation. So one of the mantras that I recently read, and I'm going to share with you now, is this. And it's given to pilots who are in a high-stress situation. So if you've ever seen or heard about uh, an airplane that had to crash land somewhere, this is the kind of state I'm talking about, the kind of situation I'm talking about. And the three-word mantra that all professional pilots are taught to remember at a moment of crisis is this. Aviate, navigate, communicate. And they're given in that order. Again, it's aviate, navigate, and communicate. And each of those simple words, and yes, they rhyme, which makes it easier to remember. So your, your mental bandwidth is reduced when you're in a tense state. And so this gives you something to take yourself out of the tense state. You cannot hold two thoughts in mind at the same time. You cannot hold fear and clarity of mind and confidence at the same time. You just can't do that. You can be nervous and tense while you are also performing clearly, but that's not the same as being fearful. And so these three words knock the pilot out of fear mode and get him back into thinking about how he can solve the problem. The first word, aviate, essentially implies keep the plane in the air. Fly the plane. That's the first principle. No matter what else, flying the plane takes precedence over everything else. The second word is navigate, and again, it's packed with rich meaning. Don't just fly the plane, fly the plane toward a direction. Figure out where you can put the plane down. Figure out what course you need to set in order to put the plane down. The next word is communicate. And at that point, only after you're focused on keeping the plane in the air and you're getting the plane in a particular direction, then do you begin to communicate with all the stakeholders. The stakeholders in this case are going to be all the passengers on your plane, uh, ground crew at different control towers, perhaps emergency crews, whoever you are responsible to communicate with, in that order, fly the plane, aviate, fly it to a place, navigate, and then finally communicate. All right, I spent so much time on that because I want you to see how helpful that would be to someone in a crisis situation. Well, you and I need mantras that can help us in the same way. We need simple phrases that we can use that are going to remind us of rich meaning that is packed into each one of those. So at a crisis moment, we're reminded, do this, this, and this. Do these five things. Do these ten things. Because if you do them and do them in this order, it's likely to bring about the best result possible. Remember, champions lose too. Expert pilots lose planes at times. Championship performance is not always about winning. Championship performance is about doing the best you have with the materials and the situations you've been given to work with at that moment. Remember that. All right. The second how-to that we want to talk about after mantras is the concept of solitude. There is nothing greater to increase your ability to be self-aware than the process of getting alone where you can think. And here I'm borrowing some, some teaching from a fellow by the name of Mike Irwin, who does some coaching and does some writing. And he says this, this is how he defines solitude. Solitude is the discipline to isolate yourself from all other mental inputs. 
So in a situation of solitude, you're not even going to be reading. You're not going to be listening to other people. There's not going to be the chatter of music or movies or whatever it is going on in the background. You are going to be alone to think. And the way I illustrated this for our Saturday morning group was this. Imagine living in a world where you were barraged and bombarded by constant information. Well, in fact, you don't have to imagine that because that's the world we live in. Now imagine living in a world where a certain percentage of that you were able to filter out, and you do, you don't have to imagine that, but that there was still a lot of information that came to you every day that you did have to process. And what if that information kept coming all day long? And for many of us, it does. The only way that we can process that information is to get away from it. You cannot figure out, hypothetically speaking, what to do with all the knowledge while the knowledge is still coming at you. In the same way that if I were to be throwing plates at you and they were plates that would break, you'd be full-time busy catching the important plates. You wouldn't have time to worry about stacking them in the correct shelf in your, in your cabinet or your display case, or wherever you put your dishes. You just wouldn't have time to do that. You'd be full-time catching plates, catching plates, catching plates, no time to put them away. So what solitude does is allows you to put knowledge away in the right place, connected to the right things, so you can gain the right understandings from it. That's the first benefit of solitude. We'll call that clarity. The next one is a creative connectivity, and we've already alluded to that. So the creative connectivity is to take your current understandings and your current thinking and mix it with past understandings and past thinking, the work that is done in quiet in solitude, and you get a creativity by blending new ideas and old ideas, new exposures and old exposures. Generally speaking, that only comes out of time spent in quiet. Third, it restores to you a sense of emotional balance. And the fourth thing that he suggests is a benefit of solitude is that it gives you the moral courage to act. Perhaps other people have given you the input and said, this is the right thing to do. Perhaps you've even decided, this is the right thing to do, I should do this. Whether it's in a relationship or it's a business decision, a financial decision, whatever it is. But you're not quite sure if you want to do it. You're not quite sure if you really are going to like the consequences that come from doing the right thing. And he said that solitude gives us the space needed in order to work through the process of carefully evaluating the moral element of a decision and making the right moral choice. Okay, so those two things that we've talked about. Create for yourself spaces of solitude every week so that you can process the various things in your life. Also think about your emotional state, your physical state. How are you? How, how are you doing? And then to create a collection of mantras not too many, but just enough that can guide you through tense situations or confusing situations and give you the guidance that you need when you're under pressure to de-elevate that pressure and come back down to a state of clarity. I'm going to pause for a moment, let you think about those things carefully. I'll be back. All right, welcome back. We have two more things to go over this week in, in, on the topic of uh, self-awareness. The first is that self-awareness has to be intimately connected with situational awareness. And from there, we're going to go on to one final thing, which is the value of stretching and how it improves our perceptivity. All right, back to being self-aware versus situationally aware. So I'd like to create a little illustration for you, a little bit of a metaphor. I'd like you to imagine that you're going 100 miles an hour in some craft. You're traveling in the darkness, in empty space, at 100 miles an hour. 
Are you in danger? Are you going too fast? Are you going too slow? Could you go faster? The reality is that you don't have any meaningful answers to that because you have no external reference points. The only information you have is going on inside the cabin of whatever it is that you're in, whether it be a spacecraft or a vehicle. So self-awareness, what's going on inside, inside of you, is helped by situational awareness which shows you what's going on in the world around you and helps you to see how you're fitting into the world around you. Champions perform in the real world, and so they need to know how their state is being impacted by the real world, and they also need to know how they are impacting the world that they're occupying or moving through. So we'll move now from the 100-mile-an-hour craft moving through the dark and empty space to now taking a sports car and going 100 miles an hour through the center of a small downtown. Right? Now, all of a sudden, there's infinite references. You just ran a red light. There's three pedestrians ahead of you that you have to avoid. There's a car just pulled out of a side street. Uh, there, there's now a truck that's backing out from somewhere. There's all these other things. All of a sudden, 100 miles an hour feels like a risky speed to travel only because you have reference points. You know, it's theoretically possible for you to have been blindfolded and put in that same car going 100 miles an hour, and under the right set of circumstances, you could have driven right through the center of that town at 100 miles an hour without any risk and been none the wiser to how close you were to death or to inflicting death. But because you're able to see the external references, now you know how you should respond. Champions are not only self-aware. They enhance their self-awareness with situational awareness that gives them the tools that they need to navigate well. All right, the next thing I want to talk about, which is the final thing, well, second to the final thing, I'm going to come back to talk about one more mantra that I think every believer in Christ can find helpful. Before that, I want to talk about a, height of, a, a, a heightened state of awareness that comes from constantly stretching. So I'd like you to think about a test that you used to think about carefully and meticulously whenever you did it. Uh, maybe it was learning to drive a bike, maybe it was learning some new hobby, maybe you, maybe you learned to, to play basketball, shoot pull, uh, maybe, you, maybe you've learned some uh, um, martial arts or whatever it is. When you first began that practice, you were really focused. You were in the zone because all of this was fresh information and fresh skill that you were trying to master. But as time goes by and we start to master things, as we master them, we push them further and further down into what we'll call our subconscious mind. And more of these things are performed automatically. I mean, we all know this to be true from the well-worn, almost tired example of the fact that a 16-year-old driving a 10-mile trip is at a heightened state of alertness, half scared for his life because he doesn't know if he's going to make it, and overly reacting to every person who inches toward an intersection or a car that hugs the line too close. Give a 40-year-old who's been driving for 20 years that same set of circumstances, and they can drive through them while they're lost in thought about some problem they're going to face when they get to work. They don't even remember the trip. The 16-year-old and the 40-year-old both took the same trip. They both encountered the same things. One was at a heightened state of alertness. The other one wasn't only because, to the 40-year-old, this was rote, this was routine. It didn't deserve conscious thought anymore. What I would suggest to you is that all champions 
perpetually push themselves to take on new challenges, even if they are unrelated to what they're doing. They take on the new challenges as a form of training to keep themselves mentally perceptive and sharp because we are all most perceptive, most alert, with a heightened state of awareness when we're doing new things that we don't yet know how to do and we're looking for the best way to do them. It's good training for champions to tackle new stretch things. All right, the final thing I promised you was a simple mantra. We're going to take it straight from the Bible because I think this is a good daily check for your time of solitude. The four words that we're going to use are coming straight out of the book of Deuteronomy. Jesus taught on them later and reminded us of them. The four words are heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I believe each of those represents a facet of our humanity that deserves some intentional self-awareness checking on a regular basis. The heart is the deceit of decision-making. It's, it's where the information is stored and the commitments are made to act in a certain way. The mind is obviously the repository of all the information we have. It is the place where new learning takes place. It is the place where raw information is stored. Strength represents my physicality and everything to do with my physical state. And finally, soul is the package. It is who I am at the essence of me. Well, a good self-awareness walkthrough, just exactly the same as a building inspector might walk through a building and walk through every room and say, okay, this is okay, the electric outlets need to be moved in this one, I think the plumbing needs to be moved a little bit over here, an electrical or a building inspector, I'm sorry, would move through the building and he would, in each room, make some comments about what was good, what wasn't good, and did it pass or didn't it pass, you and I, as the stewards of our lives, need to, on a regular basis, do the heart, soul, mind, strength walkthrough of our own lives and ask ourselves questions about how we're doing. What's working well? What's tense? Why are we anxious in certain areas? Do we feel fatigued? Do we feel overly nervous or energetic? Are we learning well? On and on and on. But this four-part mantra helps us to evaluate all the elements or all the aspects of our humanity. Okay. So a final wrap-up, self-awareness, the second quality of all champion performance. What I suggested to you at the beginning was, apart from having a firm and fixed desire, I believe that self-awareness is the next most essential quality if you desire to perform at champion level. All right, that's it for now, and we'll do a review of week four in another week.